0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 131, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today, Ann Kier, has farmed at Cure Organic Farm with her husband, Paul, since 2005. Six miles east of Boulder, Colorado, Cure Organic Farms, 15 acres of vegetables, 85 pigs, and eggs from 300 laying hands are sold through a CSA, restaurants, farmer's markets, and an on-farm store. Anne tells the story of how she and Paul started as full-time farmers with four acres of vegetables, how they gained expertise, built infrastructure as they expanded their vegetable production and expanded the diversity of their enterprises. We talk about how she and Paul financed their startup operation and the keys that helped them to convince a lender to believe in them, as well as how they found a land tenure situation that allowed them to start farming on the outskirts of booming boulder. We also dig into how Ann trains and manages the interns, crew leaders, and additional employees on her farm to take responsibility and the realities of delegating to interns and crew. And Ann reflects on how having kids has changed how Ann relates to the farm and the changes she's made to bring more balance between farm and family and the ways the farm's demands have changed since its early days. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America, BCS two wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. And by CoolBot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a cool bot and a window air conditioning unit, save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. And Kier, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me today. So glad that you could join us here. So I'd like to start off the day by having you tell us about your organic farm. Where are you guys located? What are you guys producing? How are you selling it?
1: Right, yeah, so we um are really fortunate to farm in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. um we are right at the base of the foothills, so of uh, the mile high the mile high city, so to speak. Um, we are located six miles east of Boulder, Colorado, and that kind of gives us um oh, uh, let's see, it gives us the flexibility of being close to the marketplace. Um, with Boulder being only six miles away and Denver just 25, mi- 25 miles away. Um, and it also really allows us to um, have a longer growing season here, still at our elevation where we have food that um, we're harvesting from March all the way usually through November, um, some of our storage crops. Um, and our farm is kind of interesting in, in that we, we don't own any land that we farm on, um, we actually lease all the land from both private owners and the City of Boulder Open Space Department. Um, and um, that allows us to take care of about 35 acres at this point, um, and, uh, which we have 15 in certified organic vegetable production. And then we also raise pigs uh, for the fresh market. Uh, we keep we have about eight sows, so we're butchering about 80. 85 pigs a year. Um, We raise chickens for eggs and keep about a flock of 300 birds that we sell through a CSA program and at a farm store on site. Um, We take care of about 25 restaurants between Boulder and Denver from April through November again. And then uh, we do farmer's markets as well each week. We're at the Boulder Farmer's Market on Wednesdays and Saturdays and then down in Denver at a market there as well. Um our CSA program is uh twenty weeks as our main program from June through October and we take care of two hundred families and then we have an additional fall share, like a winter keeper share that continues on into December for about a hundred families. Um so that's kind of the demographic of our farm and how we how we market all of our produce and where everything goes.
0: That's a really large and diverse operation. Has it, have you always been doing vegetables and pigs and CSA and farmer's market? and?
1: No, not at all. Um, we started in 2005. My husband and I started the farm in 2005 um, on four acres and, um, <coughs> We had about 50 chickens and about 20 ducks for eggs. Um, And um, we raised, like I say, four acres of vegetables. And so we've grown slowly over the time. Um, This is our 13th growing season here, and we've been really fortunate to put a lot of um, good programs and infrastructure and systems into place and grow slowly, which has allowed us to be successful in, you know, in, in one enterprise before we had another enterprise on. And it seems like as we've added new enterprises on, we become, you know, our, our risk management um, gets better and better each year, too. Um which is really nice to have that diversity to feel like we've always got something to fall back on. If something, you know, if one of our crops isn't working, you know, well, maybe it's going to be a stellar, you know, honey producing year or pork producing year or something like that.
0: And so in your experience that, that hasn't resulted in you guys being too scattered and having too many different things that you're trying to keep an eye on.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think again, like the main, the main reason why is because we didn't try to do it all at once. So when we got started in 2005, my husband, Paul, and I, we came into it knowing that, you know, this was what we needed to do as a career and we needed to make a profit. And, um, you know, every year we didn't have the, we didn't have all farm income. Um, This was, we had, we had a lot of experience coming into starting our farm, but we didn't have a lot of capital Um, and uh, focusing on a couple of different enterprises when we came in really allowed us to build strong infrastructure there allowed us to create a really great succession plan in our crop planning so that you know the the goal is to never send our customers looking for carrots once carrot season starts for us in june we want to have carrots all the way to november um so you know really honing in on Doing one enterprise well before we added something else allowed us to grow and um, kind of get something a little bit on autopilot before we added something new that we knew was going to take extra care and time and attention, um, like adding in the chickens or adding in, um, you know, livestock is, is very different than vegetable farming, very different needs there. And so to kind of have marry the two. Um, is is abs- creates an absolute lovely ecosystem on the farm, but they require a lot of different attention. And so, if we could have one that was almost on autopilot or was starting to become a little bit predictable, that allowed us to give the next, you know, more attention to developing the next enterprise that would come onto the farm in order to, uh, you know, create a create a more balanced system.
0: When you talk about putting an enterprise on autopilot. Are you doing that by by having the management systems in place and still being involved in that yourself or are you largely turning over management to your employees?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm so glad you asked that question. So our employees are um you know, they're the heart of our farm. Um and every year they're different. So when Paul and I first started the farm, we knew that um growing food for our community was was exactly what we wanted to do. But, but beyond that, there was this piece of wanting to create a place where people could connect to where food comes from, because as we all know, that's, that's skipped a generation and in some places more generations than others. in some of our demographics and um, creating an opportunity for young families to come and reconnect with where food's grown, um, was something that was really important to us because we wanted people to have their feet on the ground of where you know their food came from. And likewise, um, education was important. You know, how who are these people growing food, and how are we going to get the next lot of small farmers trained and um, thriving in in the small agriculture world? Because again, with that with agriculture skipping a generation, there's not a lot of people in their 20s or 30s wanting to farm who come from farming families. Um, there's just not as many of them out there. There, it's a, it's a new group of. It's a new group of farmers nowadays. And so we were really excited about creating an opportunity for an internship program on the farm um, to show people how we farm and to hopefully raise some new farmers, um, new small farmers. So back in 2005, we started our internship program. One of the things that was super important for my career as a farmer is I did an internship in Washington State at Full Circle Farm. Um, And that was really my introduction to commercial agriculture um, and commercial diversified vegetable farming. And I learned everything there from what a profit and loss sheet was and a balance sheet to doing restaurant orders um, to, you know, all the post-harvest handling as well as, building cultivation equipment and working with different cedars um greenhouse management and and such a a full spectrum perspective is really i think one of the things that allowed us to be successful in starting our farm the first year um uh i continued to farm for other people for a number of years for 7 years before we started our own farm but working for other people really got us on the right track. Um, And so our hope is to give that gift to other people who think they wanna be commercial farmers. So we run an internship program on our farm. Um, And a lot of people we do, we have six interns each year. They come and join us from April through November um, they start out when the greenhouses are still full, um, and we haven't started transplanting yet. And then, uh, we walk them through everything from planting and feeding and using all the different types of equipment, um, uh, marketing, tracking sales with all of our restaurant sales and farmer's market and CSA organizing and database management, um, to just bunching and tail. Some days you just have to go out and bunch, 400 bunches of kale, and and then what's next on the harvest list, and what's next, and um, so that education of what the lifestyle is like as a farmer, um, a commercial market farmer, as well as a lot of the know-how tools, so they can have some access to it before they jump in on their own, is is really um, what the heart of our employee situation is. Um, so just about every year we have a new group of people come and join us. Um, we'll have. A crew leader or two crew leaders stay on from one year to the next for a couple of years just to continue you know their education. they wanna learn some of the management pieces of it as well, but you know to to answer get back to the original question is you know is you is what's your management style like? Are you still pretty hands on or do you turn it over to your employees? um I'm pretty hands on, but the goal is for my employees to know why I make the calls I do and you know to help them learn to think in the whole system um of the farm about, you know, should I pick these beats? It's just not that simple of a question, right? Right. You know, I don't know, should you pick, should you pick those beats? <laughs> and um, so, so getting people to to get the background thinking behind it is, um, is a hands-on management part. And then um, my goal is to help them uh, learn the systems well enough so that they can get creative with them and add to them and make them better each year.
0: So are the six interns, are those all of the employees that you have, or do you have additional people on the farm as well?
1: Right. So we have six interns. Um, This year we have two crew leaders, which is wonderful. Um, And then um, we hire some additional staff to help us at market and um, to help us part-time washing and packing um vegetables and um, there's a group of women who've worked with us for the last 10 years. There's four of them who work about part, who part, part time for us, that's about three days a week, eight hours a day. Um, and they help us do hand weeding and, and pick the labor intensive things like peas and favas and cherry tomatoes, things like that.
0: With 15 acres of vegetable production, uh, I assume that you guys are, are kind of running on a standard uh, tractor-based farming system?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I learned early on farming is that I learned pretty quickly what I'm not good at, <laughs> right? Um, and a lot of that has to do with mechanics. And I don't want to be a great mechanic, um, but I like to use a, a, a wide variety of tractors um, in order to get a job done. So I would Natural resource on the farm is our mechanic, Um, and uh, he's been with us for 13 years here, and um, you know, we have a great rapport, and he builds cultivation for us, and keeps all of our equipment running and um you know I mean even more than that it's hard it's hard to even say everything he does because he sees the whole picture of the farm. He knows the seasons in and out and um, whatnot. So so we do use a lot of equipment on the farm and um our mechanic keeps it keeps it all running and helps us build things in order to be more efficient out there. We do all of our own primary and secondary tillage at this point. I've bought um over the years. I've I've slowly added things to our um, collection of equipment and tractors, but we do our own plowing now. We've got a two-bottom hydraulic plow that we pull behind a 570, international 574. Um, we have a 12-foot disc, you know, that we that we disc with. We have um, a field cultivator that we loosen a lot of soil with, drag a lot of debris, those those types of things with. We use both a falk spader and a um, land pride rototiller in order to Create our bed surfaces. Um, we have a Kubota, um, uh, like a 50-horse Kubota that we use for um, a lot of our tilling and Oh, general, you know, general four-wheel drive um, implements and whatnot in order to get around the farm. Um, we also have an international super-A that we do a lot of time weeding with um, and field cultivating with. And then we have two L Chalmers Gs that we seed with and do a lot of weeding with with F-times and sweeps and shovels and discs and those reedy spiders and things like that. Um, So we're definitely still push wheel hose. Um, There's always a couple of crops that we have to run wheel hose through. Um, We do some hand weeding. We don't do any cultivation on plastic. Um, we, uh, We grow everything just in the soil with the exception of, you know, some hoop house production. We have four hoop houses on our property in which we grow specialty cut flowers and also early season crops, um, And uh, get get a jump on some of the summer sweet peppers, things like that. Um, So so while there's there's plenty of handwork, we definitely are on our tractors, you know, three four days out of the week as well.
0: When you say you're on those tractors three or four days a week, is that you? Is that your interns? Is that your mechanic? Or is that a combination of all of you?
1: That's all of us. Yeah, I mean, I was I just came in to talk with you ten minutes before the phone rang. I was just out sitting on a G cultivating. Um, dry beans specialty dry beans out there Um, another girl was getting on the other G to go cultivate winter squash and then uh, one of our crew leaders was just getting ready to put the tiller on the Kubota to go turn some beds over and and get ready to plant fall kale and, and broccolini and other brassicas. So um uh, well, there's a pretty good rotation. We get everybody out there um using equipment and um you know, first and foremost teaching people how to be safe with it because for a lot of people this is the first time they've used equipment. Um so there's a lot of a lot of education and safety training around that. But then what the goal is to say, you know, would you please go cultivate the winter squash and with the G and that's pretty much all you have to say and they're able to go um go to that field and set up the tractor the way they need to set it up and do the job. And that's, you know, that's my goal as a manager is to empower people and to give them enough education around it and experience around it, support around it so that then they can go be independent and, um, and take some initiative out there and um, really take the pride in seeing what their, their work does.
0: It's a huge amount of responsibility and trust to to give somebody, especially somebody like an intern who's, only going to be there for a year doesn't have a a long-term commitment to the operation to say here go run this piece of equipment that it sounds like is oftentimes not brand new it might might not be the easiest stuff to operate and I certainly had my experiences on my farm with broken equipment (laughs) and uh you know diesel fuel being put in the the radiator and (laughs) oil not being checked and all of that um how how do you go about making sure those kinds of things aren't a daily occurrence on your farm with so many people engaged in the machinery operation?
1: Right. Yeah, no, that's such a great question. And you know, those things happen, you know, I mean, i just about all of the radiator caps. It says radiator. We have written with a Sharpie marker over and over and over again. And, you know, it's so it's great to hear your story, Chris, too. So I know it's not just me out here when somebody calls and it says, uh, which kind of field does this tractor take again? Um, You know, it does. It does take that. But, uh, you know, again, like early on, I learned I I can't run this farm by myself, you know, if and I don't want to run this farm by myself. I don't think there's anything that's sustainable. And I don't think that's good business management for for our business is to have 100 percent of everything having to be on my shoulders, because if for whatever reason I'm I'm not available to do something, somebody else needs to step in. And so I want to create the kind of team out there each season that, um, you know, that can step in and make the farm happen, um, whether I'm there or not, you know, I, I, I kind of like to be the conductor and the orchestrator of it all. And, And I farm because I love farming. I love, I love harvesting. I love those those mornings out there when, you know, the mist is settling in from the morning dew and your, your hands and your pants are just soaked and you're walking through your bunch greens or your baby greens. And you you know, I mean, I love all that. I love all the troubleshooting. Um, but I, I, I also realized that, you know, the reason that I love some of it so much is because I really got to see the whole picture um, of what it means to to run a farm on other people's farms. Um, I didn't just go out and with a scuffle hoe and weed for 10 hours. Um, and I didn't just, you know, I had those days, but that wasn't my day every day. And I didn't just, um, you know, wash salad mix, um, you know, for eight or 10 hours a day as a farm job, you know, like I, I was really fortunate in order to have the experiences where I got to see the whole picture of the farm. And I'm, and I think that that's one of the things that helps really get people excited about farming is not, you know, is 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 seeing the whole business side of it. And if you really want to run a farm one day, having the opportunity to to know what it's really like, the lifestyle of it, the sacrifices you make for the lifestyle of it, um the rewards of the lifestyle of it as well as just the day in day out work, um is really important. So you're right, there is a lot of trust in things that no things happen. Um I've worked for many, many years to become less reactionary <laughs> when they happen um, and, you know, say, oh, yeah, wow, that's a bummer. Well, let's learn how to fix that now. You know, and with that said, it takes a special person to be the right fit for our farm, too. You know, what I mean, um, so things break. Um and then we'll continue to break, but you know, knowing how how to fix them and 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 move forward with them makes makes all the difference. And you know, having Mark our mechanic here on site who can navigate some of that stuff um, and get us going again allows it to be possible.
0: So you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned learning some patience and tolerance. I forget what it, the the exact word that you used, but how did you go about doing that? And you know. I mean, I know from experience that losing your temper or, or responding poorly to something that happens on the farm can, that can be something that comes back to haunt you for years and years and years. What did you do to to not have that be a constant ongoing issue on your farm? Like how have you, how have you changed in yourself?
1: I guess part of it's just looking at the whole system of, of why we farm the way we do. Um, And realizing that part of the, you know, the center to our Um, to our farm is training new people to be farmers. Um, And we all make mistakes. Um, And if I want to teach people and ask them, you know, to care about this place as if it was their own, I have to trust. I have to trust them to do so. So, you know, really uh, from, from me and from, from my part, it's a big time commitment. Uh, You know, I can get on, I can go get on the G and go cultivate a couple acres in three hours and and that's fine and get off and go do something else. Well, if I have to go teach somebody else how to do that, that's probably going to be another hour of investment of my time. And then they're probably going to take at least 15% longer to 20% longer to do the job, right? But for me, the added benefit is... Um, The education that comes with it, the independence that's going to come with it from them and the experience of just doing it over time. And and that's really valuable to me, knowing that, you know, like we can send a lot of boxes of food off of this farm and we certainly do. But if we can send that knowledge of what it's like firsthand to be behind the scenes and making food production happen, we can get that leaving this farm, too. Then that's the true measure of success for us. Um, and that, that feels really good. So I guess that that's kind of realizing what our goal was in, in having, uh, having people do jobs that maybe they had never done before and, and accepting that they're going to make mistakes, um, was pivotal to kind of, uh, not being quite so reactionary. You know, the the first priority one is that people are safe. Um, and then, you know, from there on we, we just need to accept and, and do our best to teach, people to see and um, safety measures when using
0: equipment. I really like that emphasis on safety. I actually remember having a, a farmer come on my farm after I had, I had been there for 10 years and it was one of my, one of my neighbors who was a corn and bean and, and dairy farmer. And I was, I was walking too close to the wrong side of the manure spreader and he actually hollered at me, uh, you know,
1: the, <laughs> you know
0: hey, damn it, Chris, you got kids. Um, I don't, you know, right, don't, exactly. don't go that close to that spinny thing. Exactly. What kinds of things do you focus on when you're teaching about farm safety?
1: Um, I guess the four things that we focus—how things work. Um, right now, we a lot of people who come and are interested in farming with us for seasons and seeing if commercial agriculture is what they want to do for a living. They haven't really had that experience before, so they don't know how things work. Um, they don't know what a PTO does and how to engage it, how to disengage it. You know, why it's why why is the PTO turning the tiller times or. You know the the manure spreader. Why why does it do that? Why and how? Um, we focus a lot on that. Um, I think that helps with safety if people can understand how a piece of equipment works. Um, they can understand hopefully where not to put your hand. And I also tease that out. I'll, you know, like pull out the details of this right here is where we'll. Rip your arm off of your body you know um we have a lot of safety measures we have my husband and I also have kids and um there's a lot of children around our farm with uh, classes and camps and things that we do as well so so not just um teaching people to be you know in their own with their own tunnel vision but also the larger perspective around you have a peripheral view of what's happening around you because you're required to make sure that you're operating safely within that periphery you know for instance if you're jumping off the tractor to grab something is the machine off or is the brake on, is the bucket down, is the implement down. Um, and it's just repetition with people over and over and over again to, and to, um, to have it become second nature. And, um, and I make sure I do, I I practice all the things that I ask other people to do as well. You know, we're moving things with a skid sphere or feed with a skid sphere. If, Somebody's helping me, or somebody's coming over. The break is instantly on. Like I've stopped what I'm doing to refocus the attention on the person who's there. So I really try to be intentional in my actions, in practices, with the same uh, in the same regard as what we ask of our employees. You know, to how, they, how we ask them to utilize and operate all the equipment and machinery here as well.
0: So when you're watching for all of those, those little things on the farm, you know, you just, you mentioned a bunch of stuff, putting the brake on, putting the bucket down, making sure that the, the tractors turned off. I know from experience, that's a lot of small corrections to make. All the time,
1: all day long. Okay.
0: (laughs) So one of the things that everybody complains about, about, about millennials right now is that they can't handle correction. So
1: how do you, how do you do
0: that in a way that doesn't, doesn't alienate people by the end of the first day of being told to put down the bucket turn the tractor off and set the brake.
1: You know, a uh, great question. I I you know the the first few months, the April and May when interns come, I talk nonstop. I ask somebody to hook a hose up and I'm like, "Okay, you're going to hook a hose up. This is the female end of the hose. It goes onto the nozzle like this." I just assume that they need to hear the entire thing. And um because I want them to do the do it the way that I do it. Now my way isn't the only way to do it out there in the world, but here on the farm and our systems, this is the way you're gonna do it. And so we teach our way of doing things. They can take it with them. They can say, Wow, like she's crazy. I'm not gonna do it that way. And that's great information too. Learning what you don't like and what you don't want to do is great information as well. I just uh, it's just matter of fact. It's nothing personal, it's just I just say it, you know, nothing personal. I'm kind, I'm respectful, but I'll let you know if you know, right away if something needs to change. And um, again, that's that's part of the commitment of working with, you know, with new people every year is that you're teaching your systems over and over and over again. And with that, you're always examining your system, trying to make them safer, safer, more efficient, more profitable. And, you know, so in a sense, you're always examining, you know, you, you always have your systems under a microscope as you're you're teaching them. And sometimes you have these great ideas that you think, why did that take me four years to figure out to do this one little simple thing that saves us seven steps. But, but you know, those are, those are little epiphany moments, you know?
0: So I know you've got something in mind about that, that took you four years to figure out to save those seven steps. What, what's an example?
1: For sure. So, I mean, like one of them would be, so we wash and pack all of our food that comes out of the field right here on the farm in our little packing shed. And, um, we generate all of our lists and invoicing through QuickBooks. Um, so by the time I generate a harvest list for our morning meeting at 6 a.m., we are all the food that we're harvesting that day already has a destination. It's been sold or it's been, it's going to the CSA or it's going to the farm store. It's going to market. And, um, you know, on these lists, it'll say, you know, like, uh, pound sign slicing cucumber. Right. And so that's pound by the pound, slicing cucumbers, and then how much of it is going to each different location. And it teases each item out. You know, so this is one of those things where it's like we, we one year, you know, we grow like eight different varieties of cucumbers out there. Right. And so they're all over the list, but they all come in at the same time from the field, because when we're out harvesting, we're in cucumbers, we do them all at once. They're all one crop at once. So, you know, it, instead of having all the prompts be by the actual name, lemon cucumber, or slicing cucumber, or Armenian cucumber, you know, it's like, what if we stick them all under, you know, cucumber, you know, just use the word. We've got this whole page of cucumbers instead of 12 different pages to find cucumbers on, you know, this is, this sounds like a very trivial matter, but something like that ends up saving mistakes and time on the back end of, of washing and packing because you know i always tell everybody you know the, the most important place on the farm isn't the field the most important place on the farm is our packing shed because it's the last place we see our food before before it goes to our customer whoever our customer is and um we want to make sure that you know it's our best work we even every time and so if we make a mistake in the wash station chances are people aren't going to buy that product product or buy our food You know, for for some reason, again, so if we can minimize the mistakes that are made in our wash station, we can grow as much beautiful food as we have and have a great market. But if we continue to make mistakes and be disorganized in our in our wash station and our packing shed, things like that with our deliveries, then we can grow the most beautiful food anybody's ever seen. But we won't be here next year because nobody's buying it, you know? So, so little things like that, you know, those little epiphany moments of how can I make, how can I make our systems more efficient and better and make more sense and minimize the chance of mistakes. Um, sometimes the best way to figure all that out is by using them for a long time and and, and seeing where the mistakes come and, and then doing something as simple as alphabetizing, <laughs> you know, or changing a prompt. Um, so.
0: Now, you said the packing shed is the most important place on the farm. And you also mentioned the importance of developing your infrastructure for the vegetable program before you expanded into the livestock. So tell me about your packing shed.
1: Well, um, so our packing shed, we, again, we lease some the property where our main home farm is, where we keep all of our equipment, um, you know, where our packing house is, kind of, kind of central operations. And um, there's just a little small lean-to barn on it that we finished off. Um, I bet we added a walk-in cooler to it with two doors: one to enter directly from the packing shed, one to enter from the exterior of the packing shed. So somebody loading deliveries can can you know have access in different locations. Um, we have a series of tanks that we soak vegetables in. Um, we, of course, harvest like based on what's the most heat sensitive and work through our days that way. Uh, we would do a lot of baby greens um, on our farm, salad mix and spicy greens, arugulas, endive, escaroles, um, Raising mixes, kales, um, lots of bulk, different bulk greens, and um, figuring out a way to wash those efficiently was was pretty paramount in our first few years, just because we didn't have a ton of labor, and it was just one of those time time warp kind of jobs, right? Um, so we <clears throat> we uh, soak everything in tanks pull them out of tanks put them in mesh bags and then they go into washing machines that we've taken agitators out of um from the washing machines they come out and get sorted on steel tables and then stainless steel tables and then go into um get packed per order all of our restaurant accounts they can order they don't have to order full cases of things they can order Three pounds of arugula or 45 pounds of arugula. Makes no difference to me. I'll pack them three pounds, I'll pack them 12, 45, whatever they want, because um, we harvest to order. So we do all of our packing. Um, coming up with a great labeling and tracking system was really important, like lot numbers, um, which we just use the date for and whatnot. And all of this is really inexpensive, low. Um, low-intensity kind of stuff. Um, You know, these are some of the systems that we created our first couple of years that we still use. Um, I know with, uh, you know, food safety and GAP certifications and things like that, there's a lot more sophisticated software and things you can do out there, but... When you're first getting started, you know, just having a system that's accurate and usable is is really important. Um, You don't want it to be cost prohibitive to be able to have good quality and track where your food goes and for safety reasons and things like that. Um, And so we just adapted them over time. And I'll just
0: chime in on that and say, I mean, really, when you're talking about, you know, tracking food for food safety purposes, the simpler the system, the better. And I really think for a lot of people getting into computerized tracking is actually a level of complication that you just don't need. And really doing it with paperwork and a date-based lot code actually makes the most sense.
1: Yeah. And that, that's how we work it. And it's, and again, it works for us because it's something that we can do. We can manage it. I can teach everybody to manage it. You know, Um we don't need special printer pr- printer paper. And, you know, for some farms, the lot system, the computerized lot system and with, with, the, you know, um barcodes and things, that's really great. That's wonderful. You know, for us, it's just not, happening, but I guarantee we can have the same level of accuracy. I can track where that box went. So, you know, doing, you know, putting that kind of stuff together, um, and, and teaching people about the systems is, um, makes it successful. You know, you asked earlier, one of the questions was, you know, how do you keep everybody, uh, you asked me about how, you know, how do you get all the information to everybody and keep them safe and, you know, not, um, you know, one of these questions and one of the other things we did actually just last year, and I've been trying to do it for years, but just last year, we created a handbook, like an actual employee handbook, It's like a 60 page information about how we do everything on the farm. And I just hand this to our employees their first week they're here. And I'm, you know, essentially I'm kind of like, this is the inside of my mind that created these systems. And um, I hope it's helpful for you. And Um, This is just a great reference for you to revisit on how all of our different lists and sheets and, you know, things work. There's everything on that from how to let the chickens out in the morning and do chicken chores to which tractor gets which type of fuel and, um, you know, to how do we track our CSA um, income from week to week to make sure CSA members are are getting what they paid for, uh, not too much over, not too much under, et cetera. So that was something that's been really great and helpful as a resource for our employees too.
0: So I've worked with a couple of farms that have, that have done that, that have documented everything on the farm. And I found a lot of times that book just ends up being something that gets stuck on the shelf and and left there. Is it, is it something that your people are, are using
1: you know i I don't know right now i think uh I think everybody's tired and is farming you know they're they're in the farm season, they're waking up they're farming for 12 hours and then they're going home rejuvenating and coming back. But, you know, one of the things that I love the most about um, having interns is they call me after they leave and they're working on another farm or um, they, they've they taken on a crew leader job or they're in a community garden, they're doing something and they call and they say, hey, do you remember, how did we make that list that tracked X, Y, and Z? You know, and I love those calls because that tells me like, hey, their time here was valuable. You know, like they're, they're taking something away from here taking it into their next job they're staying in the growing community um so my thought was if if we can put this handbook together with all this information in that they use day in day out maybe it'll be a reference while they're here but who knows they'll have the stuff when they leave here to pick up and it can be a reference for them to get creative and create their own systems and whatever job they're in um you know as it pertains to agriculture or um You know, it'd be a good reference for them, a good starting point for them um, if they want to use some of the tools that they got, that they had access to while they were here.
0: And from everything you've said, I assume that you don't, that you haven't used that book this year as a substitute for actual elbow to elbow training.
1: No, it's not a substitute. And that was never the intention of it. The intention of it was, it's, you know, it's a, it's a something, it's a reference tool for them. Um, during the season and beyond um you know i mean it's got our crop plan in it so if they want to follow it along and see what we should be planting when you know what we're behind on what we're ahead on what worked what didn't work um they can they can do that if they don't want to look at that for two years until they're ready to write their own crop plan or garden plan or whatnot there it is for them um there as well. You know, they can see how it's teased out. So it's just an addition to, it's definitely not a substitute for the, the hands-on one-on-one management.
0: Awesome. With that, Ann, I'd like to stop here, take a break, get a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Ann Kier from Kier Organic Farm in Boulder, Colorado. Perfect. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depends completely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. It's got to produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil. And later, I focused on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But what I found out was what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer of Vermont Compost Company can tell story after story of customers who switched to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. VermontCompost.com perennial support is also provided by bcs america a bcs two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with pto driven attachments like the rototiller flail mower power harrow rotary plow snow thrower log splitter and more you name it and you could probably run it with a versatile bcs two-wheel tractor the first time i used a rototiller way back in 1991 it was mounted to a bcs two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life when you get behind a bcs you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and other mowers and I spent most of the time while I was using them thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see a full lineup of tractors and attachments plus videos of BCS in action. All right and we're back with Ann Keir from Keir Organic Farm in Boulder, Colorado and you mentioned your land tenure situation when at the beginning of our interview you you said that you guys don't actually own. Any of the land that you're farming on,
1: right? That's correct. Um, so, I uh, after working in Washington State for four years, uh, my husband and I had the opportunity to come back to the Boulder area, and um, which which we just loved, and kind of knew that this is where we wanted to be for the long term. And I worked for a farm. Um, in the area that unfortunately isn't here anymore, the owners would sold the property and close the farm. Um, and as that was transpiring, you know, I kind of I remember Paul and I talking, you know, well, what are we going to do? What do we want to do here? And and Paul said, well, we, I guess you just start another farm, man. And I was like, oh, I, I guess we do. How do we do that? and um you know boulder is is a really uh popular place to to live at this point. There's a lot of um technology medical um sciences you know like um a lot of different positions and jobs um available through universities and whatnot. so it's a pretty popular place to live um which definitely drives land prices up, so it could be quite cost prohibitive to think about oh I want to start a farm, and it's gonna cost. 70,000 an acre. You know, to get into that, right? To buy that. Um so we've got we started to get creative and think about, well, we're not going to buy anything because we don't have any money. Um we're not coming into this in any way. So, where can we lease? Um how can we lease farms? And we just start I started getting in touch with the larger community here in Boulder and um was really um was really welcomed by people who'd been farming here for a long time, both with people who's had family who's homesteaded here, you know, starting in the 1850s to, um, you know, people who had had farming businesses here for 25, 30 years. Um, you know, really the, the agriculture community was, was welcomed us with open arms to have new farmers come in. Um, and we started leasing some land, um, from, a farmer who grew up uh, right here on our main farm he grew up in this house and it was his parents home and there was about three acres here uh, that we could farm on and then another farmer um, in the area you know, came up one day and said, Oh, you know, I, I hear you're leasing the Ellis place and, you know, I lease some land just across the street from that, but it's, you know, I, I don't really need it. It's a little far for me to, to come. And I've got plenty on, on another parcel. Would you like to take that lease on too? It might, might help you be a little bit more well-rounded and have a little goof room if you will. And so we started leasing that two acres that year as well. So, um, we just have put it together slowly. That's how we got going. Uh, Really was working with two other farmers in the area that had some availability. Um, And then, um, you know, to start the business, I started looking around like, where, where's the money for farming? Banks aren't going to lend to me. I don't have, I'm 27 years old and I don't have any money to my name and I've been farming for the last seven years and, I don't have any off-farm income, and I've got some great numbers that show what we can do in this area. But, you know, I I wasn't really well received at, at uh, regular, you know, both community banks and national banks. You know, they, they really couldn't do a whole lot for me. And so I started looking to farming programs, um, the Building Farmers Program, um, the New and Beginning Farmers Program. That's that's um, run through Colorado Department of Agriculture and then um, the Farm Service Agency, you know, which is kind of known as a lender of last resort, mostly for commodity crops, right? Commodity growers. Um, but I, I put my paperwork together, which I got to say was probably the only reason um, I was asked back, um, you know, into these meetings for a second meeting was that I showed up with a file with a budget and a business plan and profit and loss sheets from previous years on similar acreages with similar marketplaces. So I really showed up, um, with my, with my business in a folder ready to show to people what we could do, what we wanted to do and why they should believe in us as much as we believed in ourselves. um, and, um, Brian Cook, the farm service agency, uh, lender took a look at our, our numbers and he's like, this is a breath of fresh air. You know, he's like, I, this is really exciting. We need to get Farm the farm service agency ex- excited and, and, um, behind, you know, smaller farms, diversified organic farms, even, I know uh, that was a bit of a stretch, um, for them in 2005 in my area. Anyway, it just, you know, organics wasn't something that was showing up in the farm service agency, um, office, let alone like a small little diversified farm. Um, but nonetheless, I showed up with my paperwork, my business plan, my profit and loss sheets from previous years. Um, and I showed up with, with an ask saying, you know, this is, I can do this. I need to get this started, but I'm going to need, I need a capital, um, loan and I need, um, a line of credit. And um, we work the numbers, and um, we got to prove that that year. So I'm doing all this in November for the for the year that I want to start farming in January. And I can I've secured the lease to start in January. Um, so we finally got all of our funding and everything to deliver. I want to say February 1st was the first time um, that was when funding became available to us to do it, pay for our seed orders, et cetera. Our funding came through, and and first thing I did when we came here was Mark, um, our mechanic, Mark, and I, we built a greenhouse. Um, And then while we're building the greenhouse, I put our seed order in. The seeds show up. The end of January, first part of February, we start planting seeds in the greenhouse. Well, that's done. Now we need to build a hoop house get our hoop house built by before the end of February. We put our first round of baby greens in there and then by April first we're harvesting greens for the first market. So I mean really it was just kind of like, you know, it, it wasn't gonna be an option for us not to make this work because this was this was what our plan was. <laughs> you know, this was our only plan. And um we were uh you know with a combination of having previous Previous years of farming experience behind us and, and working for other people, being fortunate to see the inner workings of, of the business side of running a farm really set me up to walk into those offices so that we were able to be lended to. You know, we had our things together and we um, we were prepared and that that really allowed us to be successful from the very first season on. In hindsight, that was the best thing we ever could have done for ourselves was was the homework in the office. Um, before we before we planted our first seeds you know so since then over time um we don't we've been able to be our own funding um create our own funding since our first year we paid back our term loan which was a seven-year term loan and we paid that back in six years we took 60,000 out to buy tractors walking coolers um Oh, housing for our interns. We built a kitchen for our interns, you know, things like that, you know, long-term things in order to make the whole business go. Um, we paid our line of credit back that year and we haven't taken a line of credit yet. We use our CFA payments as a line of credit for us to start the season. And then we've saved over the years, um, each year we put money away to allow ourselves to kind of fund for us, fund whatever we need to fund next. Um, we can go and easily get loans at this point too in order to fund things. Um, but, you know, sometimes if, if that box truck comes up, you're you're always going to have an opportunity before you're ready for it, right? And so it's nice to have that money in the bank um, in our savings so we can go and buy that box truck when it shows up and and we need it today instead of needing to turn around, you know, 15 days later to get the loan approval and all those things. Um, So it's it's nice to have some, some put away for, for a rainy day. The other thing that was really instrumental in us starting our business that first year that that Brian Cook, the farm service agency um, lender, you know, said to me, he looked at me and he said, my favorite quote, and I use it all the time is profits preserve passion profits, preserve passion. So essentially what he was telling me was, and, you know, you love farming, but you know, what's going to make you love farming, making a living from it. Um, And so I guess we try to make sure that, you know, one of the things we're always teaching people is, you know, you don't have to have dollar signs for eyeballs, but you definitely need to make money from being a farmer. You know, what other occupation out there in the world are you not going to, is it okay to not make a living from? And, um, if you don't think you quite can pull it off yet, maybe it's not, you're not maybe quite ready to be the same size or scale that, that you're thinking. Maybe but what are ways to get into it? How can you creatively get into it in a different way so that you can minimize the personal risk there? Um, so, you know, I mean, th- those were all that kind of goes with our land 10 year. Um, and it, some of those principles we carry year after year, um, you know, as as we go on um, with our business, but um, in we knew as time kind of went on, we knew that we needed to expand one just to keep the fertility of our land going. You know, we do winter cover crops. We rotate our animals through, um, graze them on our cover crops, but we really didn't have any piece of land that we could leave fallow for, um, you know, any given any given season. You know, everything was getting planted two, if not three times. Within a growing calendar for us, you know, and so the sustainability of that and allowing you know the land to rejuvenate and maintain fertility there and have also have a little goof room was always something that was on my mind um, in Boulder county here we've have a really interesting um Land use system where, where in the late 80s, Boulder County citizens and city and city of Boulder citizens, we decided to tax ourselves in order to, um, Purchase some of the land in order to keep it into open space not to not allow it to be developed, so a lot of the old farms and ranches original homesteads out here are publicly owned lands at this point um and the best way to manage publicly owned lands is to rent it back to the citizens in order for them to care for it and so Boulder County has over forty thousand acres um in public lands, ranch lands, farming and ranch lands. Fifteen of those fifteen thousand of those are irrigated. And then in two thousand and ten we became the first certified organic grower on City of Boulder open space land um to expand our our um our farming enterprises right here in, in our near vicinity. Um and then in two thousand fourteen we took on an additional twelve acres with a homestead um of city land. So again right here in our vicinity which has really a made our farm um, you know, it's, it's allowed us to, uh, you know, manage our land in a lot different way, not have to use it as intensively. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put one crop in, we always have something in summer cover crop now, as well as fall winter cover crop. Um, we've been increase the amount of animals we have on the property in order to, you know, bring that diversity in both not only for the marketplace, but also in adding fertility and diversity to the ecosystem that we're creating here. Um, So having, having, you know, the public lands that we've been able to get onto has been instrumental, I think, in the long-term health of our farm, um, surviving both for, you know, fertility-wise as well as for the marketplace
0: you said you were the first certified organic grower and the first vegetable grower to get onto those Boulder public lands
1: was Um, just the city, the city of Boulder. Yes. The Boulder County, which is a different organization has, has a, has a robust organic program on that, but um, the city hadn't, hadn't ventured into that yet. And then most of it was commodity crops and or um, you know, a calf cow operation, hay operation.
0: What was it about your organic farm that made them want to make that leap with you?
1: Great question well, um I'd like to think that some of it was stewardship um i I also think that um some of the parcels that became available were a bit of a natural fit um for where our farm is located um the proximity of it um you know, we we work a lot with the city of Boulder to host volunteer days out here as well. And um, one more out, outreach um, potential to get have people allow allow people to have an experience here on the farm where they can connect directly with where and how their food's grown. Um, and so I think, you know, some of the education uh, fit that we were already currently doing kind of fit with a mission that they have and do as well, um, with their programs and, and keeping, uh, you know, public lands accessible to all and using it for educational opportunities. Um, so I think there was a natural fit, uh, and a partnership level for, for lots of reasons in that way.
0: That sort of public outreach, and you've talked about this with regards to the internships as being a a cornerstone of your farm, but you guys, I mean, you, you talked about this volunteer opportunities. You guys offer classes in things like fermentation and natural fibers dyeing and you guys do a kid's summer camp. Can you talk to me about how you make all of that stuff work? <laughs> and, and, and I guess, and also I guess I'm curious in because I know this is part of how this works. When you talk about how profits preserve passion, are those a source of of direct profits for the farm? Or is that does that just fit into the fuzzy outreach that maybe gets people to buy more carrots?
1: Right. Great question. Um, some of both. So let me explain. So we do, we have a lot of different outreach programs. My husband, Paul, really, his focus on the farm is connecting people with this place, um, the large, the larger agricultural environment of Boulder County, but also, you know, with our little corner here um, on 75th and Velma. And um, Paul leads all of our school tours. So we host tours. We host tours for everyone as young as preschoolers all the way up to PhD students. And, you know, quite honestly, it's just about the same tour um, of the farm and how a diversified certified organic farm works. Um, we slip in a lot of environmental ed. We slip in a lot of agroecology. And we also slip in a lot of history about the place um, here in Boulder County and, um, you know, our watershed and um, and so forth. And um, we do charge for our tours. Um and have minimums for that because you know time time is everybody's best commodity right in life and uh, and we so we need to be reimbursed for the not only the impact that it has on the farm but also the time that it has um so you know those our tours are profitable they're 5 dollars a person um you know for school groups and we have a minimum there um and they take about an hour and a half um but the, they also have a ripple effect in life you know and that that ripple effect is is a value to Paul and I, and it's, you can't put a monetary value on it necessary, but it's a ripple effect that maybe some of these kids on tours, maybe they will go and grow some tomatoes and pots. Um, maybe some of our kids camp and whatnot. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Maybe they will have their own garden or their own chickens, but again, they get, you get them on the farm so they have this experience because everybody eats one of the most important and intimate things we do every day is we sit down and we share a meal with people. And, um, you know, and, and where where the origins of that come from? If people can you know have that thought just a little bit in their mind, that's going to be great for farmers everywhere. Um, that they that they realize there's people attached to this and an ecosystem attached attached to this. Um, so you know, the, so they have a ripple effect. Yes, they are part of the warm fuzzy, and you know they'll stop by and buy carrots from us at farmers market. But that's great too because that. You know that's just how how the community extends um uh, our kids camp we run a kids camp um, for children ages six to nine um but for 10 weeks out of the summer kids are here monday through thursday from nine to three we hire a director and an assistant to run that program we have a mag- between 10 and 12 kids each week so it's a fairly intimate camp um the kids have their own garden they work in. They also are out in the fields, you know, doing all sorts of things as well. Um they they take care of all of our animals, collect eggs, they're with the chickens each day. Um, they do a ton of different on farm arts and crafts. Um, they cook, they harvest, uh, they learn, you know, about integrated pest management and they put plays and skits on about things like that. Um so really they just kind of get to be a farm kid for a day, you know, they get to feel how hot it is and then run through the sprinkler after they've been picking strawberries. Um, they, they come clean and they go home dirty, you know, every day. And, um, but it's that experience that they've, you know, that they get to have here on the farm. And, um, that is definitely something that we profit from, from, um, again, I'm always thinking about risk management in the farm. You know, if, if something happens out there out of my control, which, you know, truly, really what really is in our control out there? <laughs> you know, maybe a hail storm will run or we'll roll through tomorrow afternoon. You know, you know your weather patterns. You make the best calls you can on your land, but it's really nice to have um, some risk management ideas, strategies in place. Um, you know, to carry you should should something come through and wipe out, you know, some of your crops, so you can't you know can't make all your money from from a harvester, so that you've got cash flow, you know, when you need it. So our kids' camp definitely allows for that. Um, farm classes, you know, the farm classes are a tricky one. Um, I wouldn't say they're necessarily profitable. Um, we break even on them. Uh, but they the, the focus of our farm classes, the couple that you mentioned are a couple that the most recent ones we just had on the class. We also do things like, um, you know, how to make pickles and green beans, you know, jam making classes. Um, things like this, uh, and rescaling, quite honestly, you know, to get people using, using seasonal vegetables and, and fruit, um, and learning how to preserve and put away, um, again, and, and giving them the tools to do it and the recipes to do it so they can go home and hopefully continue to carry the traditions on. Um, those are the tricky ones cause those, those don't, you know, make a huge profit margin, but those end up creating lifelong customers that always come back and buy their cases of tomatoes from us each year or their cases of peaches, you know, that we bring over from the Western slope of Colorado and whatnot. So it creates the relationship. And, um, and that's, I think really important in the business, um, that we have here of, of not just growing food, but also creating a place where people can connect with where their food's grown and, and, uh, And want to be a part of it.
0: So for the classes in the summer camp, that's something that's in Paul's court, right? That's not, you're not trying to manage that yourself in addition to all of the production activities on the farm.
1: Yeah, no, my husband does, my husband, Paul does a lot of that, um, organizes that he hires the staff for it. But, you know, I mean, we're both, we're both intertwined in, in a little bit of all of it, um, you know. As you do, you know, it's a big rubber band ball, right? You you get intertwined and everything. But um, but yeah, Paul's really kind of the go-to for that.
0: And you mentioned you've got kids of your own now.
1: We do. Paul and I, we have um, two daughters, one who's nine and the other who's four.
0: And I'm always curious about this. Was there something in the development of Cure Organic Farm that said, oh, we're ready to have a kid now? (laughs)
1: Uh, I wish I could say we were that organized, but, uh, sometimes, (laughs) like I mentioned before, sometimes opportunity, great opportunities present themselves before you even realize you're ready for them. And, um, uh, you know, we were, you know, I always wanted to have kids, um, but it wasn't, you know, like, okay, this date, we're going to have kids. Um, fortunately, both our girls have fall birthdays, (laughs) so that worked out well. But. But, you know, uh, it was just it was part of, you know, what we wanted to we wanted to create a family in our life. And, um, you know, quite honestly, having kids was probably the best thing for me to realize that, um, you know, there's they come first. You know, that irrigation out there, that that hole in the irrigation that I'm thinking about nonstop and I'm looking at right now and I want to go fix. I'm going to have to go make lunch first. Um, And so my kids have really helped teach me priority and um that you know let's just put this into perspective you know what what is happening here is you're always managing a living system and one of the things i think that's common in in a lot of the podcasts that you'll hear here on the farmer to farmer is how each farm talks about once they get started like just how much you know how much you do those first few years and uh you know how you give everything and then another 50% on top of everything, you know, you, you give all you have and it's just, it's just nonstop. And and then it is what you have to do in order to get going, get the farms going. And I was still in that mode before we had our first daughter, you know, I, I could just work and work and work and work and go and go. And I'd see this and that needed done. And, um, she taught me some temperance and that was wonderful, you know, when, when, uh, and still now, you know, when she needs, when she needs something needs me, when it's, Five o'clock, I need to go make dinner. I turn into full time mom at that time and and it's really wonderful to have that. And that that's the best blessing, you know, is to be able to put uh you know, put your family first, put your kids first and actually take action to that. And I think it's really tricky for a farmer to do that, you know, to put anything first, because the nature of farming is there's always something else to do. And there's always another emergency that needs your attention right now. Um so
0: well, I remember back in the, back in the eighties, there was an essay that came out uh, during the farm crisis about who's going to sit up with the corporate sow. And it was, and it was, this idea, <laughs> on, you know, on corporate farms, who's going to be the person that is, is there at two o'clock in the morning, making sure that, that the sow's doing okay when she's given birth. And I think it, it is such a challenge on the farm because the farm, it does, it needs that. It needs that level of attention and love. But of course your
1: kids do too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, it just you got to make for for us the choices to take care take care of our kids and our our family first. And I think honestly that, you know, making that conscious decision, it it's so silly when you even talk about it out loud cuz it sounds like it shouldn't be a hard decision to make at all, right? But but really are you taking care of your kids first? Or are you taking them to school? Are you, you know, like just these these things, you know, for, for these are personal questions for me that I was asking myself. And I was like, you know, I, I'm not taking my kids to school. You know, my youngest just started school last year. And, you know, I, I can remember thinking, I can remember I was out cutting salad mix and I was thinking like, I don't know who her teacher is really. I don't know these kids in her classroom and just being like, you know, the salad mix is still going to be here. Yeah. It's going to be an hour later when I get back, but the salad mix is still going to be here and I'm going to have to get creative in my management so that I can go and, and take her to school every morning. And, um, you know, for me, that was, that was a huge and important decision and, and exactly what I wanted to do. And I think, you know, when you have things, in, when I have things in my life that enrich me off the farm, it actually makes me a better farmer, makes me more creative, makes me see things in a new way. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's just been such a gift.
0: Well, and I think that's so important And it's something you read a lot about now in in the time management literature is, you know, this idea that you can you can give 12 or 15 hours a day to your job. But then when you come back the next day or when you come back on Monday morning, you're not refreshed. You know, there's no time to do Mm -hmm. what Stephen Covey called it, sharpen the saw. You know, that that's you need you need time to sharpen the saw and then you need time when you're actually using the saw.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: And even though I mean, it's not like it's not like taking your kids to school actually you know, directly makes you a better farmer, but it does, it, it gives you that, it gives you that something outside so that when you come back, you've got that fresh perspective.
1: 100%. 100%. That's exactly what it's about. The fresh pers- perspective. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the things that you, you know, I, I can see, I could see myself doing, especially giving everything I had to the farm was you get lost and and, and I, I can easily get lost in the farm. You know, it's, it's what I do. Hundred percent all the time, but I actually have a lot of other things I really, I really love and enjoy in life, and um, and you know engaging in those do make me actually a better farmer when when I'm here. I'm I'm a lot more efficient and um, whatnot. So so actually this is this has been a personal goal. You know, the last couple of years is to to get my head out of the sand, not take the ostrich approach to farming, put my tunnel vision on, still be on it. I'm there. I'm, I'm here a lot, you know, and I'm available all the time. Um, but I have these other little things that kind of filter in in order to just help life keep expanding and, um, and keep it new.
0: Do you and your family live there on the farm, even though it's leased land?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. Yep. We lease a, we lease a farmhouse right here on the farm as well and do you
0: do you have ambitions of buying land and securing that land tenureship for the long term
1: yeah yeah we certainly do it's I'm, it's great that you asked that question um this is one of the things that we've been, I've been working on, uh, for the last couple of months actually is, um, going through an FSA loan yet again, um, a, a partnership loan where they do a guarantee with, uh, an agricultural bank or whoever, whichever we chose another ag bank, but we're in the process of trying to purchase a 10 and a half acre property just down the road from us. Um, And um, our closing date is very close. So we'll see what happens. And, you know, that's, again, just for the longevity of being here in the area and um, keeping all the current infrastructure we have on site, but just adding some acreage to it and and creating a place for our family that's two-tenths of a mile removed.
0: (laughs) It'd be really nice.
1: Yeah.
0: You have a lot of different marketing outlets, the CSA, restaurants, food stores, farmers markets, and a farm store on the property. How much of, well, and, well, and then all of your other stuff, right? The group tours, classes, the, the, the summer camps. How much, what on a percentage basis, like how much is coming from each of those different outlets?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, our first priority on our farm is our community-supported agriculture program, our CSA, with our 200 families. Um, that makes up about 40% of our annual income, um, both the regular season CSA and then our extended CSA. Uh, we keep our CSA at about 200 families at this time um, because we like to know who everybody is, and we just haven't gotten to the place where we want to add multiple days for distribution and uh, multiple days for delivery. We, 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 one of my goals is to stay, you know, keep stay on the farm as much as possible instead of being out driving, delivering, distributing, et cetera. Um, so that's about 40%. Um, our restaurant accounts are next and they come in at about 30%, um, of our annual sales. And, you know, we we harvest from, you know, March out of the hoop houses, we can start harvesting mid-March to, you know, through November into December, you know, it depends on how mild the season is, um, for December, but then we have a lot of storage crops. So last year, Here we sold 50 weeks out of a year in 2016. We were doing restaurant sales Um, and again, our diversity with our pork, our honey, our eggs, as well as all of our storage crops in the winter um, and hoop houses for the addition of, you know, some of those fall greens and early spring greens really allow us to extend our seasons and have that and to have those relationships with our restaurants and and keep the cash flow coming in from them. I don't want them to forget about us, you know. I don't I don't want the restaurants just to think of us when it's heirloom tomato season. I want them to, you know, get their horseradish and their sorrel and their spinach and their, you know, turnips and their rutabagas and everything all winter long from us. Um, so the, the more availability sheets I can send out to them, the more we are on the forefront of, of them wanting to order from us, um, and whatnot. So, um, that's about 70%. And then our markets and our farm store comprise the rest with markets bringing in more income than, than our farm store does, um, each year. So, um, but, but, you know, so that's, that's how it's spread out on our farm anyway. And, and really how I'd like to grow, you know, and, I'm thinking, you know, where do I want to be, you know, five years from now? And we probably, I probably would like to, um, increase our CSA more and take, you know, more time out of markets and, and being on the road, delivering to more restaurants Um, I'd like to keep the restaurants we have relationships with, but maybe not really go out seeking for a whole lot more. I don't really want to go looking to to engage in new markets, farmers markets, but just want to keep the ones we have, the customer base we have, but really maybe try to increase with our CSA. And and that kind of goes along with our overall goals, values, and missions, just of creating a place where people can connect to, um, and, and to meet the people who grow their food
0: your CSA members pick up on the farm or are you delivering to to drop sites for them?
1: Yeah, nope. they, um, we have two distributions. Um, one is the majority of our members. We have about 150 families who pick up here at the farm and we set it up farmer's market style, right up on a big chalkboard. How much of each item, each share receives size share receives. Pardon me. We offer three size shares with our CSA and, um, Folks go through, they they grab their vegetables. We have an exchange table. If they don't care for something that week, they change it out on the exchange table, which we populate, with, and then um, pull something off the exchange table that they prefer. Um, we also bring uh, fruit over from the Western Slope, so offer fruit shares with partner um, certified organic farms on the Western Slope of Colorado, where predominantly all of our stone fruits come from in the state. Um And then uh, we have the the remaining 50 shares pick up at a farmer's market in town that we go to in Boulder. Um, And per the rules and regulations of the market, we have to distribute our share as a pre-boxed share. So we pack about 50 boxes each week. um, And people who have indicated they want to pick up at market do so because it's more convenient for them there.
0: And when you look at expanding, say, your CSA in the Boulder area, I mean... It seems like there's a lot of organic farms there. I mean, you must have some pretty intense competition. What do you guys do to stand
1: out? Yeah, great question like. Well, the first thing I want to comment on is the competition. The competition, I feel like here in Boulder County, the competition is about all of us becoming better growers. Anybody can pick up the phone and call one another. There's a really great rapport with a lot of the farm with all the farmers here in Boulder County and um help each other out, ask questions. We go on tours of each other's farms with our staff. Um, it's, it's, it's a really wonderful farming community to be part of, um, both the organic community and the non-organic community, quite honestly, both of them. Um, you know, we all get up and put our boots on just the details of what we do in the day are a little different. Um, but there's a lot of respect, uh, for, for all different types of farms here. And, and the community is large in that sense. You know, I mean, really our competition as farmers here, our competition are the natural food stores, Right. Is Whole Foods? Why are people shopping at Whole Foods and buying produce and veg or produce and um, and fruit on a Saturday when there's such a stellar market that's a growers-only market, you know, two miles away from it? So really, I look at it as my competition as the um, as the natural food stores. So, you know, we have Whole Foods and Sprouts and you name it. It's here probably Trader Joe's and 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 so on. Um, so in the sense of competing for the same dollar, where you know, um that, that's not quite as cooperative of a of a competition. Those that's 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 where that lays. But with the other farmers, um we all are we all are distinct. Every farm has a personality. And what's really great with our marketplace here um with the Boulder County Farmers Markets is um it's in its thirtieth year and as a growers only market. The farmers own the market. It's run by a board, um, which the farmers elect. Um, it's it's a percentage based market. So if you're a farmer, you pay seven percent of your daily sales to be there. So when you have a good day, you pay more. When you have a lousy day, or you get rained out, you pay less. Makes it a lot more affordable for people to be there. Um, uh, you know, so really the 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 competition there its is is. is, is um, it varies because we all have different seasonality, you know, so there's some farms that come from a little bit further away, a little bit further out East where their summer crops always come in early and their, their spring crops go out early. So, you know, they're out of spinach by the, second week of April when everybody in closer to the mountains is coming in. So there's really the ecosystem here provides a nice opportunity for there to be a kind of a rolling succession of produce. Um, And I want to say every farm kind of does differentiate themselves a bit, you know, and I think really how we differentiate ourselves is that um, that community outreach. um, And um, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's really one of the big, distinctions with our farm is, is community involvement and
0: community outreach. And I think this is a great spot for us to turn to our lightning round and we'll be right back after we get a word from one more sponsor. This lightning round is brought to you by Store at Cold's CoolBot. Way back in 2000, the year I started Rock Spring Farm, the manager of the local food co-op complained that the lettuce from the local producers lasted for days in her cooler, while the lettuce from California lasted for weeks. So, What was all that about 2000 miles fresher? I later found out that none of the local growers had a walk-in cooler. 17 years later, the number one complaint I still hear from produce buyers is that their produce isn't cold. You've got to get your produce cold before you take it to the customer. The difference between now and then is that now there's CoolBot. You can build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a CoolBot and a window air conditioning unit, saving up to 83% in upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electricity bills compared to conventional cooling units. Use the code FTF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge. Store at cold.com. and what's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: Uh, my favorite tool right now is the tine weeder. Um, we have a Lele tine weeder, which we picked up from Market Farm Implement, and I love that. Uh, in conjunction with that, we've also started going to buried drip. Um, and Mark, our mechanic, built a buried drip system for us that we pull behind our Super A so that we can still use drip tape and, and our tine weeder. and um, And it's really a lifesaver. It has cut down tremendously on the amount of hand weeding that we do.
0: So tell me about how you use that buried drip applicator. I I'm sorry to focus on, you said your favorite tool being the tine weeder, but I'm I'm really interested (laughs) because like you said, being able to bury that drip makes it possible all of a sudden to use tools like a tying weeder effectively. So how does that, how does that tool work? Is it something you're, you're, where you're burying the drip after you have the crop established? Is it something you're putting in before you're seeding and transplanting?
1: Yeah. So we go through and we, 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 uh, we bury the drip before we seed and transplant. So we go through and we put our super a on and, um, make our it, it's attached. We have a homemade bed shaper and or dibbler um as well, all modeled off of any Google set anything you Google and you want to look at one, you know, from Buckeye or wherever, you know, we we model them, but we had some stuff on site that we could just make our own with. Um or I should clarify Mark could make our own with. Um and um so the buried drip it it's we can do one row or two rows and um it it goes through a shovel. Um, and the drip applicator is on a three-point on the back of, of our Super A, and um, we secure it to the ground with a landscaping stake, the the drip tape, and then it, it just runs through a small little pulley system uh, underneath a sweep or a shovel that's on a one-inch steel shank in order to create a furrow for it, uh, buries it, and then we put a small disc on the back of it to just cover the drip up and then we can go through and direct seed or transplant directly into it. We've done both and both just work phenomenally. Because what we found using the tine weeder was, you know, we'd go through, you know, we'd plant our head lattice or our carrots would get germinated up with drip tape, that kind of thing, and then you'd want to go through with the tine weeder again and it's just maddening to, to to move the move the drip tape out of the way of the tine weeder. You're catching it all the time. And so you know the other opportunity was to go to overhead, which we definitely have been making more of a switch to overhead irrigation. But, um, you know, we lose so much here to evaporation with our high temperatures or high elevation and our really dry air that, you know, when when your water's coming from snow melt, you know, up on up on the mountains that you're looking at, you want to make sure you're using that water as efficiently as you can and it's actually getting to the ground. So, you know, using using the drip is, is a nice um, alternative for us to to smart water management out here anyway, and, and getting it underground allows us to use those tools, which make us that much more efficient.
0: Especially things like that. I mean, that tine weeder is such a fantastic tool just to be able to jump on and go go do, you know, and you can get a lot done in such a short amount of time. And if you got to drag drip out of the way in order to do
1: the job. Oh. Then, ah. Yeah, it's maddening. And you know, you know, what's funny about that tine weeder is when I called market farm, I was ready to buy a basket weeder. And I was talking to the guys on the phone. He said, No, you don't want the basket weeder. You want the time weeder. I was like, I don't know if I do. And he's like, Lady, let me tell you, you want the time weeder. <laughs> so I went and did a bunch of research on it. And uh, I came back. I think like I called him two or three days later, you know, with my order for the time weeder. And I'm glad I did it. And, you know, I don't currently own a basket weeder, but that would be my next. I, I still think that there's a place for that here on our farm. Um, but I don't have one yet. That's on the wish list.
0: What would your interns say is your farming superpower?
1: (laughs) Oh, man. What would our interns say is my farming superpower? Um, my farming superpower is to get their mind off of bunching and make them more efficient with great conversations. (laughs) There you go.
0: That's good your workers, are they able to bunch and talk at the same time?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's the whole key is to just keep moving next to them. You got to set the pace and, and they'll keep up, especially if the conversation's good. You got to ask the questions no one else is asking, right? Because then everybody wants to hear the answer to them. And if you're moving down the bed, you know, bunching two bunches of carrots a minute, they're going to follow behind, bunching at least one a minute. So <laughs> it works
0: well. <laughs> What's your favorite crop to grow?
1: My favorite crop to grow, um, well, I have a new favorite crop to grow. This season, my favorite crop to grow is broccolini. I love it. it, it, it you can direct seed it. It's easy to weed with that tine weeder. It's a 40-day crop. You're harvesting it. People love it. You can do multiple successions of it so you don't run out of it. It's Great for CSA members. Restaurants like it. Market, it stands up. It's a lot more profitable than than broccoli production. Um, So that's my new favorite crop. Um, I do, I do have an affliction for heirloom tomatoes, though. We grow about 65 different varieties of heirlooms and then we grow another 12 varieties of cherry tomatoes. So growing, growing tomatoes, we put about 4,000 tomato plants in the ground, which is a fair amount for our size. I feel like farm and um, that's, that, that would be a close second at this point, but I think broccoli beat it this year.
0: Awesome. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Pace yourself. Just pace yourself. It doesn't all have to happen today. Pay attention. You know, there's there's lots of things out there I can remember, you know, in the, in the beginning. I just I have no idea how to do this. and You get really discouraged because you wouldn't have seen it before. or and then you know i think that's the beauty of being involved in in a in a living system year after year is is you see the patterns kind of emerge and but just pace yourself trust you know trust that it's all going to come together um one of the girls who works at our farm store she she bikes out here from town and um she said on her on her way home the other day there was a, a man holding a sign and and she was riding by him and he said, hey, pace yourself. Being awesome is tiring. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that that's really important for all of us to remember, especially if you're just getting into farming. Being awesome is tiring. So just pace yourself. You, you're doing a phenomenal job already.
0: Beautiful. And thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today.
1: My pleasure, Chris. Such an honor. Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode one thirty-one of the Farmer to Farmer Podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmer farmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for cure. That's C-U-R-E. The transcript of this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk behind farming equipment and high quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by Local Food Marketplace, providing an integrated, scalable solution for farms and food hubs to process customer orders, including online ordering, harvesting, packing, delivering, invoicing, and payment processing. Additional funding for transcripts is also provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com. If you enjoy the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you do talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com slash donate. And finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmer I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.